Welcome back, everybody, to Innovative Leadership. I'm your host, Ryan Stickle. With me, as always, is Stephanie Hurd. Hello. And we are back today with a guest, Heather Guestford. She is the president and CEO at United Way of Washington County, Maryland. Heather, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Welcome. This is exciting to have you here. We are very grateful for your time today. I do apologize. It's a bit warm in this room, so we're really putting the we're putting the heat on you. Put you in the hot seat today. It certainly is. At my age, I do get hot flashes. So we, we've had a full morning of meetings where this room has been packed full of people, and like you can just tell. Feel it. So awesome. we're keeping the energy going in the conference room today. Um, this time in podcast form. Uh, so Heather, if you just want to start out, introduce yourself to our audience. Tell us what you do and and how you got there. Absolutely. So like you said, I'm the president and CEO of Your United Way here in Washington County. I was with the organization first as a long, long time volunteer. I started uh, my first campaign for United Way in 2004. So yeah, I was 24 years old. So just a barely wet behind the ears and fell in love with the mission. So I served on, gosh, almost every board, it seems like in this town, but the one constant for me that always filled my love tank was United Way because we help so many different organizations, so many demographics of people. We're not tied down or tied into that one thing or that one cause or that one mission. Uh, so that's what's really beautiful about United Way is that we can literally help everyone. And we we really do. So 16 years later, uh, this fell into my lap, the opportunity to take the keys and run the place. And here I am. So I started 30 days before the pandemic. Oh, wow. I remember yes. that. Yep, 30 days. And then we did a complete pivot, as they say, and we launched into disaster and emergency response. So my first year was uh, complete. Everything was disaster emergency response, but we did a really great job. I mean, we stepped up before um, any of the governmental agencies had time to organize or form or activate. So we were out there delivering food, delivering milk, delivering PPE, you know, all those things that people couldn't get. We were out there day one, never missed a beat. So it was it, it was exhausting. The whole first year, it's like, I don't even know my name anymore. I never thought I was going to be doing anything like this. But luckily, it settled down. Thank goodness. Yeah, so. that's crazy. I mean, to step into any job yeah. 30 days before 30 days. all of that, yep. uh, but your job specifically in a leadership position at a place that helps people in a yeah. time where pretty much everybody yeah. needed something. <laughs> yep. I mean, it was crazy. We had grocery stores calling us, farmers calling us, everyone that wow. you can think of, um, municipalities calling us and saying, you know, we have to pour all of this milk down the drain or we have to throw all this food away. We moved, for an example, one in one day, we moved over 170,000 pounds of perishable foods just wow. in one day. So, we're really good at organizing and activating large groups of people and volunteers. And um, we took over so many different feeding programs because people didn't have the bandwidth to do it. Um, some of the organizations that we support were high risk at the time. So they were ran by senior citizens and their primary volunteer were senior citizens. So they were afraid. So it was um, really incredible work that we did. Um, then we partnered with our friends over at the Community Foundation, and we started doing emergency grants. So in about three months' time, between us and the Community Foundation and partnership, we raised over $350,000 wow. that we were able to get right back out into the community before any of this COVID disaster ARPA money was even thought of. So we were able to help 
you know, people keep their lights on and their businesses and their nonprofits. So I think that's what we've been most proud of during the past, you know, three and a half years. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. awesome. I, re- I remember those early days of the pandemic and you ha- you were new to the organization and it just seemed like every day I was seeing pictures pop up of you on a yeah. street corner somewhere Crazy. giving a check or yeah. food or something to an organization. And I think <sighs> it speaks to the importance of local programs mm-hmm. in communities because, you know, we all know eventually there were government programs yeah. and things were going out. But, you know, people that are living paycheck to paycheck can't mm-hmm. wait that now, even month, yep. let alone maybe six months until a program on a larger scale gets yeah, rolled out. And, and you guys are really there to pick up the yeah. the pieces right away, which is phenomenal. And that's, you know, this United Way has been around for, gosh, so many years, almost 70 years now at this point. And you know, this is what we've always done. We've been that gap filler, that, um, you know, that response agency. And it's really hard for people to understand what we do because they literally see us doing that. They see us everywhere, way, way, way back in the day. United Way was what some people would refer to as just a grant maker, where we would raise money and then give it out. That's totally changed. We are really that response agency. So it doesn't matter what's on fire, we're running to it. And United Way Worldwide, you know, has really activated that as part of their mission and their platform. Um, United Way and Maui is one of the lead response agencies for the Maui fires, United Way in Ukraine. So we really are, um, we have our our day-to-day stuff that we try to focus on, but if there is a crisis, a disaster or a need or something that Hagerstown, Washington County surrounding areas need, we're not going to say no. So it's something that we can do, or if we can't do it, then we'll line up with one of our partners to get it done. So it's hard to package that and explain to people like, what do you do? Like a little bit of everything. (laughs) I I am curious, just uh, leading an organization at the local level that is part of an international organization. How is that hierarchy and that structure, you know, how much governance does the larger United Way have over local United Ways. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's uh, frustrating at times because United Way is, you know, one of, and at times, depending on the year, you know, could be the most trusted, recognizable brand, um, you know, the biggest nonprofit in the world. And then you have little, little Washington County. So at times it's harmful because people associate us with the resources that the big United Ways like D.C. and Baltimore have, you know, Mackenzie Scott, for example, last year gave multiple United Ways, including one here in Maryland, you know, 26 plus million dollars. And so at, at times it's it's um, harmful because people assume that we are, you know, a big 800 pound gorilla, but we're not. We don't have those those resources, those bigger groups do. Um but we do get a lot of support from, again, the brand. The brand is, um, you know, one of the most trusted. Um, and again, people know know us. They know they can trust us. But how do you differentiate yourself between some of the bigger groups? So that's that's a big misconception we have to clear up sometimes is that they think like we're, you know, United Way Worldwide and we're just sitting on gold bars down on Washington Street. <laughs> so <laughs> not true. So is there like a board and an organization at the worldwide level and the local organizations oh, or yeah. is it all just the local organizations? Yeah, a lot of oversight just because of the the size. There's um, over 1,200 network United Ways. So there's a lot of governance there. So we have a local board of directors, which right now has um, over 20 directors and officers on it. And then United Way Worldwide in the States has a board. And then there's also a global 
United Way board because we are active in, I think it's like 19 or 20 different countries now. So they do have a global presence. So there's global board, United States board, and then each United Way has their own local board. So a lot of government oversight, a lot of governance rather, It's but it's good. So that way you do what you're supposed to be doing. Um, you know, donor trust, donor intention, integrity is is everything we've stood for since yeah. we came to fruition. And I would imagine as a leader of a small nonprofit it, that they are able to provide you maybe with some resource, like even just training yeah. resources the or training. to elevate you yeah, as you, a leader. Yep. You just nailed it. The training is the best um, thing that we get from United Way Worldwide. They um, connect us with incredible training opportunities. Um, they do give us some some training education dollars that we can that we can spend. So they do that for us. They help us with some marketing assets, which is good because we don't have the resources to, you know, deploy agencies and things like that for us. So that's I would say the the best benefit, but we do not get any financial support from them. Um, so that's a mis- misconception we always like to clear up so people don't think that we're getting some of those Mackenzie Scott dollars. <laughs> so <laughs> we need your donations. And we also <laughs> receive no taxpayer dollars either. So um, fund your United Ways yeah. local. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to circle back to, to when you started or when you took this position uh, more specifically. Um, do you think coming into such a crazy time has left you better prepared for, I don't want to say normal times, yeah. but more typical day-to-day like we kind of have right now? Yeah, I would say, and my whole team who are incredible, we all joke about if we could survive that, we can really survive anything. And Mm -hmm. like a lot of organizations, we had some turnover. Um, You know, some people moved away. Some people wanted full-time work. You know, some people only wanted part-time work. So when you have a transition of a team also during a difficult time, um, that was something that we were really proud of, that we were able to have some transitions with some volunteers and staff and you know we came out even better from it during a difficult time but there is um, no two days that are the same because when you do what we do and you're literally helping everyone every time the doorbell rings or the phone rings you never know what it's going to be so every day's pretty chaotic but what we went through especially that first year I, I just I can't even imagine like we literally didn't have a single day off for like the entire lockdown. Like I never knew what that was like. Wow. We were always out vulnerable. You know, we're out wiping down boxes of groceries Mm -hmm. and things because at the time we were told we had to do that. (laughs) I had like boxes of PPE in my garage for 72 hours that, you know, that were wiping down and things. So I just, oh gosh, I think it did prepare me. I, I just can't even imagine like if we got through that so well, like Bring it on. Yeah. Right. Well, yo, what, could on. We, what could we knock it? Like, through? yeah, yeah, yeah. And we we didn't just survive, but we thrived and we really saved so many people. And the community was really grateful and let us know how grateful and show their appreciation to us, which really meant more than anything. That kind of, I think, maybe partially answers my next question where you're coming into working for a nonprofit full time. And before this, you were doing some sales and jobs more like that. Yeah. What's been the biggest difference coming to work for a nonprofit full time? I know you've been involved for for years now. Yeah, I came from the corporate environment and I did business development. I traveled living out of a suitcase at times and it was a very hard transition, even though I had been a longtime volunteer and I'd, you know, been in the nonprofit space as board members and things. It's like, you know, 
going from civilian life essentially <laughs> to a nonprofit, it is a little crazy. And I, I coach people on that a good bit that are wanting to make the transition from for profit or corporate or education, academia to nonprofit. That whatever you think you're going to expect, just throw it all out the window. So it is a really difficult transition, and I've tried to coach people and 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 just you know set their expectations because what we see in this space and our 83 organizations that we work with is that you have really well-meaning people. They have really big hearts. Most of the time, they have a story because this is not um, you know the sexiest industry. Like people are saying, "Oh, I can't wait to do that," because you give up a lot to work for a nonprofit. But you have to be in it for the right reasons. So if you have a story, you know you want to do it for it's something that's passionate for you. We just try to prepare you like, okay, there are weeks where we have to make decisions about, do we really need to buy the paper clips? <laughs> you are, you, you know, the expenses, you have to be really mindful because every single dollar that I spend on something, whether it's an office supply, a training is a dollar that I can't give someone out in the community that really needs it. And then you have to defend that. Mm -hmm. So that was the hardest transition is I've, if I needed more employees, I could just hire more people back then. Mm. Now it's like there's never enough volunteers, never enough employees, but you can't hire them because the money doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So we always try to you know coach people wanting to get into the space about how it is a little bit difficult of a transition, but it's worth it. It definitely fills up your, your love tank. So do you feel like your experiences in the corporate world kind of paired against or compared against your your volunteer work. Do you think that's what really inspired you to go all in? You know, I think it's my my background with United Way. I just drank the Kool-Aid so early and I just loved it so much because I just saw the massive impact we have and nobody's nobody's serving more people than we are. And so I, I really felt like even just as a volunteer, like I knew that I could influence other people because I really believe it. So I feel like if I didn't truly live united, there's no way I could come into this chaos and really influence my team and our volunteers because we operate primarily on volunteers. So you really have to love what you're doing. And, and just like sales, it's a transfer of enthusiasm. So I have to really be able you know, to show that to other people, to want them to get to work with us. So I think it's really helped me because you know they see like, okay, she's really passionate about this. This must be pretty, pretty legit. So it's definitely helped. Um, I imagine that, though, your experience from the corporate world, I mean, we were just talking about the strength of nonprofit leaders. And, you know, when you have so many people who their heart is in the right place, yeah. their mission is in the right place, but maybe their only experience has been volunteer or nonprofit, I could imagine your experience from the corporate world has served you really well because I think a misconception often is nonprofit means no money. Yeah, that's the biggest. <laughs> and, yep. and you still need reserves. You yeah. still need savings. You yep. still you still need money. Yep. Unfortunately, benefits are big. You, you, and you ha yeah, yep. you have to manage that. So how has that yeah. kind of served you? Yeah, and our our industry colleagues and our partner agencies. This is something we talk about all the time. That the expectations in the community, and I hear it all the time, is do you know what this CEO makes, and do you know what that person makes? It's not fair that nonprofits are perceived as or seen to um, need to make half or less than what a development person should in the corporate side. Like, why, why should one of our agency CEOs make less than 
another organization's CEOs because we're a nonprofit. As long as they are making their numbers, they're making their metrics, they're serving their population. And traditionally speaking, we all do. And we don't agree with it. But it's very frustrating when you hear people that are, are you know, bashing other people and nonprofits for the salaries that they're making when actually what they're making is so insignificant to what they are worth and the value of what they're bringing. But I hear that all the time. And, and you know, we try, we look at this all the time with our organizations about are our salaries competitive? You know, what can we afford to pay? The benefits traditionally aren't as best as corporate America because, you know, we're a small nonprofit in Washington County. So for our team, which I've always focused on with all of my teams, we try to make it a really great place to work. So we really focus on that corporate culture. And I don't say it. My team says it. It's their words. You know, it's a great place. We're like a family. So we've really created a culture and environment. So where if we can't be as competitive as one of our bank partners or one of our our corporate partners, where we try to say, okay, but look at all these other culture benefits that we give about flexible schedules and work from home and you bring your, you know, your dogs to work. And uh, so we try to focus on, on some of those extra fringe benefits, especially for working moms. It's a good place that they have some flexibility. Do you think that's the biggest misconception about nonprofits is that it can't mirror some of that corporate environment? It's so frustrating. And I know there's a wave in the industry right now. Like we're all talking about it. Why is that? Why is that okay? And I hear people talk about this corporate CEO and I, and I challenge people sometimes, as long as they are not, you know, not doing right by their clients or their their community, why can't they make the same? And typically when I do challenge and I push back, especially development directors, it's really hard to find a development director in nonprofits because, you know, the commission at some of these other organizations is incredible. And then if you're a nonprofit and you're seeing even giving commission, That's, you know, for some people, a big red flag. So I always like to challenge people on that, but it is a big misconception. And the industry right now, I know it's a, it's a really big hot button for people. So it's, and it's, it's a shame because all nonprofits, you guys want Tom, you want your nonprofits locally to be run by top talent. Well, then you have to pay people what they're worth. Uh, Absolutely. We're not there. We're definitely not, the community is not there where we should be. And, you know, in the case of especially larger nonprofits where, I mean, you could be responsible for a balance sheet that is just as significant as a large corporation. Would you want somebody of a lesser skill responsible for that? Especially, honestly, I feel like it's more weight on your shoulders when it's donor money and public funds that you're responsible for. You need more skill set. There's more responsibility. There's more accountability to your community. And, you know, somebody with that skill set should be fairly compensated. Yeah, the, the amount of oversight that we have because of the donor dollars, the, um, the grants that we get, we, every single penny, and I mean every penny that comes in and goes out, and we just wrapped up our audit this morning, <laughs> goes through a multiple month long audit. It's extensive, but the amount of oversight we as nonprofits, good nonprofits, has it's absolutely incredible. And I guarantee you it's far more than the private and the public sector. It's it's actually unbelievable. And the amount of time, you know, it's not just me looking at our balance sheets and our finance managers. We have an entire separate finance committee that goes through it with a fine tooth comb before it even gets to our board of directors, before it even gets to our auditors. So there's, there is, to your point, it, it's, it's a lot of management and trust and accountability and a lot of oversight. And 
you know, there's a lot that goes into this that people just think, you know, we just get checks and do warm, fuzzy things. It's it's a lot behind the scenes. It's overwhelming at times. Yeah, I was going to say it's probably part of that misconception is like yeah. people just aren't aware of of that type of that level of scrutiny that's going yeah. into the finances, right? Because this is taking people's money yeah. they are generously giving yeah. and then giving that out to people who need it. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal. It's not like, you know, someone's giving you $5 and yeah. you're selling them a product. Uh, yeah. This is a it's a bit of a different ballgame. Yeah. It literally is so. Yeah. And I mean, not only that, and I certainly want to get into some of the mission stuff and the mm-hmm. people that you're serving, but, you know, we were just talking about barriers to being a successful, productive yeah. member of the workforce, you know, childcare, transportation, housing. If you, if a nonprofit is not paying enough, you know, if your employees are struggling with those things as well, they're not going to be mentally at a place where they can can do their yeah. jobs well, just to like the people you're serving. Yeah. It, it seems unreasonable to expect a nonprofit to serve a population that they themselves oh, find themselves up against the yeah. same the same challenges. Absolutely. And we see that with many of our partner agencies. We're actually supporting a lot of their staff, sadly. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you may have heard um, municipalities use it, government uses it, a lot of them, most of the nonprofits in town use it, but it's called the United for Alice study. So ALICE stands for Asset Limited, Income Constrained, and Employed. So ALICE is our working poor, for lack of a better you know, explanation. They are hardworking people. They're medical assistants. They are program assistants, people you know, working at these child care centers that are just trying to make ends meet. But they're living paycheck to paycheck with just a minimal survival budget. So they're not, you know, making it rain at home. It is, you know, insurance, rent or mortgage, car payment, car insurance, groceries, and a smartphone, essentially, plus insurance. So that is what we would deem a survival budget. And they are just one medical bill away from crisis. They are one vehicle breakdown from crisis, from essentially losing everything. And in this town, in Washington County right now, some pockets of the community are higher, like downtown, obviously. But on average, 40% of Washington County residents are Alice. Wow. So it's alarming. I was going to ask you, what are the most pressing issues facing Washington County at the moment or anything that's kind of top of mind right yeah, now? Do you Stephanie feel like- nailed it. So child care is always number one. We don't have enough child care. We don't have enough affordable child care. Number two is transportation, which luckily... Um, we feel like we've kind of got a silver bullet for right now. I can't talk about it yet, but it's going to be launching soon. But United Ways across the state have been working really hard on a transportation solution. So we're excited to say that we will be able to help with that soon. But number three is housing. So right now, it's kind of been like a perfect storm of some housing uh, issues. We don't have enough inventory in town. And then the inventory that we do have, because this is, like it or not, it's a really hot housing market here still. So what we're seeing is that the rental market, we don't have enough. And then the landlords, um, on average, that we've seen over the past two months, have been raising rents uh, up to 30%. So we're getting a lot of senior citizens, for example, that are on fixed incomes that are now getting notice that their rent's increasing because the landlord can, because he or she can get it, and that they either have to pay up or get out, and they're on fixed incomes. So as an example... Last week, I think it was, we got our most recent housing report. We have just for one, one Hagerstown Housing Authority list, there were over 5,000 people on a waiting list. But for the Francis, or excuse me, C.W. Brooks building, which is a senior living um, 
apartment, there was 188 people on that waiting list. Mm -hmm. So we had um, some funds that were being pumped into the community too called ERAP, Emergency Rental Assistance Program. People um, were getting some help with their rents. Well, that's dried up. So people that were um, comfortable and getting some help maybe did not plan as well. And now that funding is gone. So we're seeing a lack of inventory, an increase of rent, and a decrease in some of that rental support. So we're in really bad shape with housing right now. While there are these assistance programs that can help people and they might be more temporary fixes, are there any paths forward for these people that any steps they can try to take? Or are these just things that are completely outside of their control. Yeah, it's it's kind of multi. And that's multi- a big the big question. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you know they there has to be some accountability on people too. And this is the hardest part of our job because you see really good people like the people I was telling you about that have worked hard all their lives. They're on Social Security or Medicare, Medicaid. You know, at no fault of their own, they've done the right things, and they have someone that's taking advantage of them and is raising the rent. No fault of their own, but we don't have anywhere. To, to put you because <laughs> there's no inventory. Yeah. So we have some of our partner agencies, um, some community groups where we're able to supplement some hotel stays um, till they can get some housing. But then you have other people that are just not doing what they need to be doing to improve their situation. And this is where we work with um, you know a lot of different organizations to try to get to that root cause. Um, Circles is a really great program in town. It focuses um, on poverty elimination. So going into these groups and to these people and work with these clients and saying, okay, you've went to CAC now, you've got help from CAC, you went to REACH now, you got help from re- from REACH for rental assistance, utility assistance, and now you're coming back. What did you do to better your situation from the first time? Because we can't keep helping you. Mm. So you have to have those difficult conversations with people to say, look, you've been given a gift, you've been given a lifeline, but you've got to stop this pattern of behavior. And Circles, again, is a mentor-to-mentor-based um, program that really tries to get to those root causes. Our um, agency, in partnership with several other agencies, we have financial literacy, coaching, and, and training. One of my teammates goes you know, to Hagerstown Housing Authority and literally teaches classes about how to get yourself onto a, a working budget. Um, the consortium is part of the Circles program. They do a really good job about bringing people in, getting them some upskilling, um, some coaching, helping them with job placement. But too often, and and this is where you have to kind of, you got to get a little callous up to it as you see these repeat offenders coming back. And, and I say, what have you done different this time? Like you're not learning. And this is where it's hard because you can't help everybody. And nor, mm-hmm. nor should we, because you're taking resources from someone that really is in a genuine state of crisis outside of their control. Yeah, it's hard. I can imagine that can be tough, even if it is somebody who, you know, for a fact has, you know, could probably be doing more, mm-hmm. um, you know, and obviously there's other external factors. But, yeah. um, you know, is, is that has that how's that journey been and how many of those tough conversations have you had to have? Does that get any easier? No. And I, in this industry, the hardest thing for me and my team, because we're all here because we all have a story, there's all always something is the compassion fatigue. Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't be here working, trust me, like we talked about paying Mm -hmm. benefits at a nonprofit because this is not going to like, it's it's not the sexiest job. It's just not. But you really, you're here for the right reasons and you want to help people, even those people that keep making the same mistakes. I had one, literally a call 
while I was driving here. Um, you know, we have a significant mental health crisis here in Washington County, uh, which is also reflective of our opioid crisis because the two go hand in hand. We see people that are self-medicating um, because there is, you know, there's a trauma, there's a mental health. So those go hand in hand. So you people in act, see people in active addiction. Um, it's really hard when we see the kids involved. But we can only do so much. And we try to tell our team that too. Every day, we literally start our day with just saying, like, let's just do the right thing. Just today, let's, whatever we do, just do the right thing and do what we can. But, you know, at the start of the school year, we had almost 600 kids at WCPS that are identified as homeless. Mm-hmm. Some, it's couch surfing because they're staying at an aunt's of friends. Uh, we've got a ton of kids in hotels right now. We've got kids at the Dagmar right now. And that's what really rips your heart out because you see the parents not doing the right thing or mm-hmm. making the same mistakes or not able to help themselves and the kids are who's suffering. So that's what really gets you. I can imagine that's a tough balance for, for people who truly do want to get into this line of work because yeah. you want to do it because you have that, you're, you're passionate about this. You want to help people. But also what that means, it means you care yeah. and yeah. it's upsetting to see this. That's why yeah. you want to help. But part of the job is... You have to have a tough conversation. Yeah. You you have to you have to see this stuff happening yeah. first off because I think you know a lot of people living in the community have no clue of those how high those numbers are and even if they're they're struggling a little themselves might not understand how bad some people have it. Yeah. Also. Yeah. I mean, we have kids. You know, one of the programs that we support and we love is Micah's Backpack. So you know they're getting um, backpack meals essentially. So they have some food on the weekends because parents aren't necessarily maybe worried about their kids not eating when they're in school. But what we also see is that they don't have stoves. Some of them don't even have microwaves. So a lot of these feeding programs and the pantries we support and the food we put out is something that the kids can prepare themselves or the parents can prepare on a hot plate. So it's it's really tragic when, you know, some, and again, we see this a lot with some well-meaning churches. They're putting out all these things and they're putting out eggplants and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Like these people don't even know what an eggplant is. Mm. So they're, <laughs> unfortunately, we have to do a little bit of a coaching and say, look, like they don't have the tools to even prepare some of this food. Thank you. It's incredible. We appreciate you so much. While it's not the most nutritious things that we have to give these kids or these families, it's what they can eat and what they can prepare. Which leads to, you know, we talk about diabetes and all the other medical problems. I think that's such an important message, too, though, of, you know, no matter how well-meaning you are, being willing to truly understand somebody's position yeah. and meet them where they are and give them the help that they can handle in this moment. And sometimes that's not necessarily maybe going to be what you wish it could be. Right. And there's a lot of shame involved with it, especially with our Alice families. Um, we have a program, United Against Hunger, for example, and the biggest beneficiary of United Against Hunger is those Alice families. So we support a lot of programs and organizations and people directly that don't want to be seen as having to ask for some supplemental food. They're not getting SNAP benefits. It's, you know, the cost of food is still significantly up over two years ago. Now it's come down since last year. It's still about 11%. Some categories have come way down. Like at its height, egg was, eggs were like 55%, but eggs were still then hovering, you know, mm-hmm. on average about 38%. Lunch meat was 18%. So that's a lot. Like if you're living paycheck to paycheck and you're spending that much more on food and those families don't want to ask for help because they've never had to. And there no. is a lot of shame with it. And we try to, you know, make it as discreet as possible. We, um, 
we have, in addition, we have hygiene pantries and things like that. So where, you know, we can send some supplies home with the kids. We work directly with the counselors. You know, we had, um, we have five of them right now, but two of the schools that we work with had some really high absenteeism rates. And it was because they had lice outbreaks. Um, so the kids weren't coming to school because they have lice or, you know, they have body odor or they're not clean. So just very discreetly, we can like send the kits home with the kids in their book bags. And, you know, so you're solving for a couple of things. You're building mm-hmm. some, some self-confidence with the kids, getting them clean. You're helping the families because it's expensive. Lice kits are like $25 a piece right now. And then, you know, you're getting the kid in school so he or she can just focus on learning. So again, these are these are people that are trying to do the right thing. They just need a little bit of help once in a while. What um, what are you doing and what do you encourage your staff to do for your own mental health? I mean, I can't imagine how much yeah. this wears on you. It, I, I swear to you, it keeps me up every night. It's really hard. So we try to focus on self-care. Uh, we have we have a great team. Um, a couple of years ago, we had an employee who's... Um, she's incredible, best person you ever meet. Um, empath, you know, has a really big heart and always wanting to do the right thing. But, you know, we saw compassion fatigue hitting her really, really hard. And that really changed me. I feel like that was a big wake up call because we were all caring, but I just, you know, I really saw like what an emotional toll it took on her. So since then, you know, we do a lot of check-ins with our team, how are you feeling? How's your heart? We talk constantly. We have team huddles. Um, but every day we just try to like remind ourselves, like just focus on what we can, um, always do the right thing, regardless if it's someone where you, it's, it's going to hurt, it's going to sting, but do the right thing. But the compassion fatigue is real. It keeps me up at night. And um, I just try to focus on the wins, you know, those kids that we can help, those seniors we can help um, focus on on the positive. But it does. It's it's kind of a curse. So you like try to preach to other people, like what to work on the self-care, like, you know, the team, we're all going out to dinner tonight. We try to do those, those team building things, but then practice what you preach. So I, I, you know, I'll be vulnerable and I'll be honest and say it, 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 it's wearing on me. It does wear on me. This is a hard time of year because right now we have so much going on with Thanksgiving and Christmas and we've got kids that don't have anything for Christmas. So this, this time of year is a really vulnerable time for most nonprofits for that reason. So what advice would you give, you know, the average person or even the average employer in Washington County? You know, what what are the needs and what can they do to help solve some of these problems? Yeah, I would say um, the biggest one that we preach a lot is just to communicate um, and communicate with us. Um, we go, you know, we're like the hub of the nonprofits. We are literally touching everybody. There's, It's very rare for there to be a group that we're not touching, impacting in some way. We see a lot of organizations and employers operating in silos. And again, they're well-meaning. So they say, oh, we're going to do this big thing for this group, or we're going to do these things. And then we just kind of shake our heads and we say that they don't need that. So we see a ton of waste. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every every week we're saying, we're saying to ourselves, I wish they would have just told us because this group is really much more in need than this group. Um and it, it ebbs and flows. It changes every week. So one one week, you know, we joke that the pig might be fat and happy over here and this one's starving. So just for these agencies, especially just to work with each other and to talk to each other. And it's really unfortunate. We're seeing so much of like, there's all these new pro- nonprofits popping up and, and I get it. It's like well-meaning and people want to do the right thing. But I have only heard 
in all of my years of doing this, even as a volunteer, one new night, one new idea in town. So all of these people are already doing the same thing. So we could be so much stronger if everybody would just come together. It would save money, it would save time, it would save resources. Um, and employers, you know, it's not your primary role is to be worried about the community and nonprofits. You guys are, you know, here to run your business. So we see a lot of employers, um, luckily that they'll come to us and say, what are you hearing? Who, you know, because we're kind of policing people a little bit, uh, what's going on? So we'll tell them, okay, check here, check here, do this, do that. But some of these employers, we just see them going, going to market with some of these things. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is such a waste. And we've seen it. We've seen agencies give things away because they're getting it in wheelbarrows practically. And then they're giving it to other organizations. They're giving it to us. They're giving, they cannot give it away. We saw a ton of food last year go to waste because some of these big mega churches are doing these pop-up food, you know, events. And then you know, the mega church down the road is doing a pop-up food event. And then this mega church is doing a pop-up food oh, wow. event. I mean, we literally had, I can't count on how many, um, all of my fingers and my toes, how many times that we had groups trying to scramble to get this food to somebody before it goes to waste. And a lot of it got thrown away. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's like, why don't you guys just like communicate with each other and then like take different weekends. And, you know, if you're doing like a drive up food event, well, the people that may really need it don't have access to transportation to drive up to get the food. So how about like, let's talk to each other and let's deliver it to some of these really uh, rural communities. We really see a lot of need. South County, Hancock, Cascade, Clear Spring. Can we drive it to them? So yeah, communication. People willing to help, but not yeah. enough organization or, or communication on their Just part. not talking to each other. And then we end up getting put in the middle, you know, because it's what we do. Like, hey, can you help us get rid of this? Can you help us find this? Can you help us find Like, I wish you just would have talked to everybody first. And we're, we all, we have networks. Like, we have some different social media platforms where all of the nonprofits can communicate mm -hmm. with each other. But there's too much of that silo operations it's really frustrating we every every week we're always getting somebody that's not talking to somebody else hmm. we were talking a bit before we started recording just about um you know how you guys get involved in pretty much any nonprofit yeah. in the community and what resources are you providing i think you had mentioned you're going into some and providing like board mm -hmm. governance training can you talk yeah. to us a little bit about that about how you're helping develop these nonprofits yeah yeah so we get a lot of these smaller nonprofits who don't have the resources they don't have um, the training they don't have the, the they don't know really what to be doing but they know they have a good product essentially whatever um, you know their nonprofit is they they're well meaning so we do a lot of training so we've done um, again board governance is huge but Here's what you can and can't do if you want to keep your nonprofit operating. Uh, we've done a lot of um, development training, so um, fundraising in a time of crisis. We've done um, yeah, how to apply for grants. So anything that we can do to help take off some of the burden and ease some of the burden for these nonprofits. Uh, we just did a training a couple weeks ago about how to fund your nonprofit. We showed them all of these different resources that they can look at. Um, I just met with a, a, a very new, very tiny nonprofit last week. Really good platform that this lady's got. Didn't know the first thing about, you know, she's looking for capital funding. So we do a lot of, um, again, we're just trying to lift people up, lift organizations up and say, here's what you guys need to do to be successful. And we always lead with collaboration. 
collaboration, just like communication is the number one thing. Too many people operating in silos. So like I said, I've only heard one new idea in all of these years. Um, So that's usually our first question is, how are you collaborating with other people? So because if you're a small nonprofit, and especially if you're applying to a foundation, if you're applying to United Way, that's what we're going to see is who else are you working with to ease the burden for resources, funding, volunteers. Um, But yeah, that's those are in terms of like the training and everything, but there's um, a lot um, that we do for nonprofits. So supplies, food, pretty much whatever they need. In addition to traditional grants, Um, we have our own programs. Of course, this is just what we do for other people. We also do emergency funding, um, obviously the disaster response, but there's not too much like if a nonprofit or group comes to us that we won't help them with, but we really focus on that collaboration and and trying to upskill and and get them where they need to be. And for any of our listeners that might be, maybe they've been approached about being on a board or um, they're looking to get involved in an organization, what advice do you give to them as far as kind of vetting what organizations you choose to give give your time to? This is, um, and I've tried to shout this from the rooftops for many years to, to volunteers because you are a fiducial fiscal agent of that organization. So don't say yes right away, regardless if it's, you know, fill in your love tank because you, oh, I love this organization. You have to really know what you're signing up for. And the first thing you always want to say is, I want to see the financial statements. I want to see your bylaws. I want to see what does your governance structure look like? Because any good nonprofit should be able to easily produce those things. And you always want to see a 990. So you're good. It doesn't matter how small you are. You should be able to easily produce these documents to show that you've got your stuff together. We also recommend um, that the nonprofit that they want to serve with goes through an audit, whether it's a big full audit or it's a little audit, whatever that looks like. There has to be some sort of accountability. They need to have directors and officers insurance. Um, but those bylaws, the bylaws are huge because that shows you we are doing things by the book, um, by the state of Maryland by the IRS. And if they can't easily, quickly produce that for you, run, (laughs) run, because you are going to be fiscally responsible for that organization. Even if you're not in there signing checks, you are an agent Hmm. of that company. Yeah. I was going to ask for for those people who do want to get involved and work for a nonprofit. Do you feel like there's one or two kind of overarching qualities that they should have as a person to be able to work there and, and deal with that? Cause I, it can be tough. Yeah. I, you know, really just be genuine and why you want to do it. Um, I know for some of the bigger nonprofits, um, and us, even for example, we get a lot of people saying, well, they want to serve on our board or they want to serve on a committee or whatever. It's because it's United way. It's been around a long time. It looks good on your, you know, your LinkedIn. So <laughs> be actually serve because we are very, picky about who, you know, we have on our board because we don't want to just put anybody on there because, you know, it looks good for them. It looks good for us because they're taking up a seat from someone that might be an absolute rock star. So, you know, really be in it for the right reasons and actually give back because I've served on boards, many boards where it's that 80-20 rule. You've got 80% of the board that shows up when they do for a board meeting and only 20% of the people do the work. Our board is really an extension of us. We operate, again, mostly on volunteers. So we need people that are worker bees, people that do things. Is there anything that United Way is doing right now in particular that you want to 
shine a light on or or let people get get them aware of? Yeah, this is um, traditionally and people who've known United Way for a long time. Um, you know, it's our workplace campaign, our big campaign season. Now we campaign all year long, but this is the time of year we still have some organizations. Amen that do workplace campaigns for us to make it easy for their team. So when they're doing open enrollment for their benefits, they'll say, do you want to contribute to United Way? So we're in that season. So really like to get that message out there that if you can contribute to a workplace campaign, all of that is going back out to our local community. It's going back out to community impact programs. You know, you know where it's going. You know, there's trust and accountability. And then just our year-end giving um, so right now is the biggest time of year that we need those year-end tax gifts. Um, like every nonprofit, you know, we're trying to push that. You know, everybody make your last-minute donation. You know, reduce your tax debt debt for next year. Um, that's huge for us. We have um, we have so many different programs and expenses right now that are really determined by how much money we get in because we don't get you know, private insurance, we don't get tax dollars. Everything that we do is based on donations and grants. Um, so we have two community meals that we're doing for Thanksgiving. We always, you know, have a lot that we do around Christmas, especially with kids. So just if you can support your United Way, we take care of right now, we have 83 active partners. So on an average year, we serve just under 65,000 people here in Washington County. So 83 organizations are depending on us. And, you know, that might be food, that might be school supplies, that might be grants, that might be physical volunteers, but um, help us help those 83 organizations <laughs> so we don't have to tell anybody no, especially at Christmas. We appreciate it. Yeah. UnitedWayWashCounty.org if you'd like to hop on and donate. So. And there's four other United Way of Washington counties in the United States. Yes. Is, so make sure you hit Maryland. Like if you're just doing a Google search. <laughs> searching, yes. Make sure it's Maryland. Washington County, Maryland. That's why I made sure at the top when I introduced yes. you, I said Washington County, Maryland, Maryland. Because there are, I mean, there's one right over in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. So. That one gets us all the time. We do get that one a lot because we have a. It's um, only three hours away. So. Yep. That's the biggest one. And they call <laughs> us, hey, we got another one for you. Like, we got one for you. Ship it back up there. And they ship their stuff here. <laughs> look for the, look for the Hagerstown. Signifier at least, yes, not Washington, please, PA. Please. No confusion here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Heather, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much. Uh, this has been awesome. And obviously, you know, here promoting a good cause. So uh, we appreciate that as well, especially this time of year, like you yeah. said. So, And you guys are great community partners. You guys have been great to United Way for a long time. Jason Rappaport was a big United Way guy back in the day, and I'm sure he still is. So I just wanted to plug you guys as really great community partners and you do a lot for many people. Thank you. In community. So thanks for what you do. <laughs> thank you so thank much. You. Well, and thank you listeners for tuning in this week. We'll be back here in a couple of weeks with another great guest. As always, we appreciate you listening for Heather Gesford and Stephanie Hurd. I'm Ryan Stickle. See you next time.